Hi guys, hello and welcome back to the latest episode of the Irish Balance podcast. If you are new to this podcast, thank you so much for listening in for the first time. My name is Kira Kelly. I'm a medical doctor specialising in public health and I'm based in Galway at the minute. If you are a regular listener, then you already know who I am. And thank you so much for coming back uh, to the podcast again. You can find me on Instagram at the Irish Balance, which many of you might know already. Today is a much anticipated part two podcast chat with two very special guests about COVID-19. Um, I am very happy to have as my guests again today, uh, Dr. Laura Lennon and Dr. Kleena Nivukula. Welcome girls, how are you doing? Good, thank you, Kira. Thanks for having me. Good, thanks, Laura. Yeah, thanks for having us. Great stuff. Girls, I know we did a bit of a background on both of you, but I might just get you to tell us a little bit about yourselves in case the listeners don't know. Um, I'll start with you, Laura, if that's okay. Yeah, so thank you, Kira. I'm a GP reg like yourself, finishing up the scheme tomorrow uh, down in Galway as well. Mum to two little girls. I'm pregnant with my third two in two weeks. So I'm on Instagram like yourself at Dr. Laura GP, where I do a lot of virus stuff obviously at present um, and usually women's health skin and kind of kids um, health stuff so make sure to pop on by um, if you're interested in any of that. Enough to keep you busy I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> and Kleena can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Of course um, and firstly congrats Laura a uh, big day tomorrow. Um, yeah. so- Hi guys, I'm Dr. Kleene Nivukla. I'm a specialist in clinical microbiology and public health doctor. So at the moment, I'm helping to deliver the COVID-19 pandemic response for the Cork and Kerry region. So I'm based in Cork. I live in Cove near the water with my husband and young son. And I can be found on Twitter at Dr. Kleene and on Instagram at a little, uh, slightly more wordier handle, but it's C underscore knee underscore Vukla, which I obviously didn't think through uh, when I was setting it up. (laughs) Thanks for having us again, Kira. No, thank you so much for joining me. I think it's it's great to be able to address some of the questions that we have uh, been getting a lot on social media and uh, through work as well. Um, we touched on some key areas like surfaces and spread of, of COVID-19 and pregnancy um, in our last episode. And today we've got a few other areas we're going to touch on. But I think it's important to start because this is a very challenging time for us all. And I just want to start by asking both of you how you're doing. Um, how are you finding this, Laura? Um, yeah, good. I think my anxiety levels were definitely up more so at the beginning, um, especially, I suppose, being pregnant and, and bringing a new baby into this very changed world that we find ourselves. Um, but as Ireland has been doing so well and as we watch the statistics get better and better, I definitely feel um, more relaxed about the whole thing. And I just really hope that we can keep going with what we're doing and, and keep everyone safe. Yeah, I think that's very true. And I would echo all of those sentiments. Lena, I know you're kind of on the same um, side of this as myself in public health. How are you finding it? Yeah, um, so doing OK. Thanks, Kira. Um, I know we've been chatting offline. You know, certainly there is there is a lot going on. There's been fantastic progress. People have done such an amazing job of engaging with the public health measures, which is so heartening to see. But I do think now, Laura, you mentioned there about, you know, um, possible complacency. I think it's really important that everybody continues with those efforts. It's really um, critical that we do that to keep our loved ones safe. Um, and I know we'll talk a lot more about that in the podcast as we go on. But um, just mm. I would say to everybody, you know, you've done fantastic work. Keep up the good work um, and that it's really for the most important cause. 100%. I couldn't agree more. 
I think it's important to, to open the podcast by saying that obviously we could dive into sort of the basics about COVID-19, but I think everyone's probably sick of hearing about those. And we did discuss those in part one. So what I think we'll say to start off with, and we've spoken about this before we started recording, is that this at the moment where we are in Ireland is a bit of a tale of good news. And then I suppose not so much bad news, but challenges. Um, like we have seen definitely a lot of encouraging signs presented from the uh, modeling data that the Department of Health have shared with us. We've seen a drop in what's called the or not. And for those who don't know, the or not is, see if I'll get this right, the average number of cases of COVID-19 generated by one confirmed case in the population. So that was four when we started this or around four. And the key thing that we want for cases to decline is for it to get to below one. And it's now most recently been estimated to be around 0.5 to 0.8, which is very encouraging. Um, and we've seen our growth rate stabilise. We've seen stabilising of case numbers and hospitalisations and ICU admissions stabilise and even decline, they think. But we have seen, I think, a bit of evidence of complacency from population activity data. I know you mentioned this, Laura, and it's something that you were um, discussing last week on your Instagram as well. Yeah, I think, you know, it's hard, isn't it? Like this is hard for everyone and, and we all appreciate that. But they're definitely, um, I thought it was really interesting at the Department of Health um, uh, daily meeting last week, they showed those graphs which showed the increase in seismic activity and then also looking at the Apple tracker, like how many more people were were moving around. Mm. And data from Dublin bus and different things around the country shows that there are more people out and about. And I think if there is a sense of complacency because we're doing so well and we haven't had this surge or wave that we were expecting, people think it's time to relax, but it's just so important to remember that it isn't. The most important thing we can do now is, you know, drive that or not down as much as we can. And the lower it is by the time we can even think about starting to, to um, you know, ease the restrictions, the better it will be for all of us. Yeah, I think it was a really interesting point made by the, the head of the modelling group last week, Professor Philip Nolan, and he talked about, you know, people keep asking, have we flattened the curve? And as you said, Laura, we definitely haven't seen that surge in cases that we expected, but that's down to compliance with the measures so far. And it's a, a fine balance, I think, of, of flattening down the curve and maintaining control with yeah. everyone adhering to the measures that we've had to date. And obviously, Kleena, I know you're exposed to this in particular in public health um, as well as well as myself. But there are it is a tale of some good news and progress, but there are some challenges that we still face. And I wonder if you could touch on those a little bit with us. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with what, what you say, Laura. You know, I think what we need to be mindful of at the moment is that certainly everybody has done a lot of great work. The or not has fallen to below one, which is good news. But the important thing is that we need to realize that we are still a susceptible population. We don't have immunity to COVID-19 or to the, vi the virus that causes it SARS-CoV-2. Um, and the other important point is that even though we are looking like we're achieving some form of viral suppression at the moment, the or one is dynamic. So that or, or sorry, the, apologies, the or not is dynamic. So that or not that we have, that isn't a fixed entity. So certainly if we have this increased activity and people, you know, stop engaging with the public health measures, we're going to see that or not climb right back up again. Um, you mentioned there about Professor Philip Nolan, and certainly he has referenced that any loosening of restrictions will have to be approached exceptionally carefully. So that if there is, and, and if we see an increase in cases then, that it doesn't become unmanageable. So it is a very delicate balance of suppression versus potential for the spike at the moment. But I think what we need to do now is 
because we don't have that vaccine yet, because we don't have the specific antivirals yet, we have to learn to live with this virus until we do have those particular measures. So we can't simply return to a pre-pandemic lifestyle and our pre-pandemic habits, unfortunately. We need to try to find ways to live with the virus and still protect our loved ones. So definitely we have to continue doing our hand washing, our respiratory etiquette, which are really good things anyway in terms of prevention of disease in general. But certainly I think we need to continue with the measures because we are still a susceptible population. Yeah, and I know we've seen a, a huge amount of their talk about, you know, the, the work they've done scaling up testing and contact tracing in particular, and also massively increasing efforts to manage um, increases in cases that we've seen in residential settings, which is obviously a huge challenge as well. Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, the, the complex control activities, and you'll have seen, uh, you both have seen these um, in work, um, they do remain very worrying and very challenging. Um, yeah, so yeah. when we talk about these complex control activities, we're referring to residential facilities. So residential care facilities, things like nursing homes, long term care facilities. And we have to consider the home health provisions as well in, in that setting. And the other thing we're looking at are the residential institutions. So things like people living in direct provision accommodation. Uh, prisons and then of course social inclusion settings so the homeless community the traveling and roma community so there are a lot of settings where it can be quite difficult to achieve mm. the necessary restricted movements and quarantining of close contacts and then even the isolation of cases can also be quite difficult as well in certain settings because of that then infection can potentially spread rap very rapidly and of course in the nursing home settings you know we've really seen our extremely vulnerable populations unfortunately suffering really severe effects of illness and unfortunately sadly we've seen deaths as well so it's really important that we try and maintain our efforts to protect those in those particular settings and certainly what's been really good recently they've uh, the HSC have put together community uh, community response teams so these are teams that will look to support um, people that are working and living in those particular settings for example they'll be bringing in extra PPE personal protective equipment they'll be increasing infection prevention control training and um, they'll be bringing in things like oxygen which as we know hypoxia is um, a real cardinal feature of this particular illness. So maybe mm. using those supports to try and help the residents of those settings. Um, and there are people that are doing amazing work. For example, Dr. Austin O'Carroll, he's a GP in Dublin. He's doing amazing work with the homeless uh, community there. And people are working very hard. A lot of progress has been made, but certainly, you know, this is a very frightening virus, particularly in those settings, particularly with the extremely vulnerable population. So we need to continue to do everything that we can until we can get this under control. Yeah, 100%. Um, I know um, everyone wants a bit of a crystal ball at the moment. I think that's something that you're getting asked about all the time, Laura, about predictions um, about the future on social media. And of course, none of us um, are experts at all and or indeed do have a crystal ball. But we did uh, see some discussion from the modelling data presented about modelling changes and restrictions um, last week. Um, and I know you were kind of keen to, to touch on this a bit in the podcast. What did you make of that? Yeah, but it is really interesting. And I, what I would say is because I know anyone that's listening to this is interested in this kind of information mm -hmm. and my followers and your followers alike, um, you know, are interested in the modelling data, especially. So it's worth noting that Professor Philip Nolan, as you says, talks every Thursday at the Department of Health meeting, which yeah. is televised um, every day. But he runs through kind of all the modelling data. So he's the chairman of the modelling subgroup of NEFET. I'm no good on all those technical terms. So they've been working with the modelling data from the very beginning. And it's important to remember that obviously models make certain key assumptions about how the disease is behaving in society and what society is doing. 
And if they, these don't hold through, then the data can be a little bit wrong. But so far, as you said, the data has, you know, we've been what's happening in real life is correlating with what they're showing in the modeling data. And it's great that they, you know, there are four different ways of measuring the variable, the, the or not variable, and they all show that it's well below one and hopefully down around 0 0.5, which is basically where we need to keep it. And so, as you said, when an or not is 0 0.5, that means every second person infects one person. So if I get it, I might not infect anyone, but Kira, you might infect one person if you got it as well. So the challenge going forward is how are we going to keep the or not there and get back to some sort of normal life? And um, life is never going to be as we knew it until we get a vaccine, unfortunately. But so they talked a lot about what might happen on the 5th of May. And I think Neffet are obviously considering various different options about what way they might res lift restrictions and what restrictions might be lifted first. And the importance of this is all, all what happens basically to the or not. So the, as low as we can get it now is the best because then it obviously has more, uh, there's more allowance for it to increase. So any increase in the or not will cause an increase of cases in the community. So even if it raised to just above maybe one, or one and a half, that will actually put us on an unsustainable track. So the big challenge for us going forward is how we can keep the or not below one without these stringent measures um, in place. And realistically, what's going to happen? So he was saying if the or not got to 1.6, so we don't maintain physical distancing, you know, we, we start getting close again as a community, then that will actually lead to a significant increase within the community and a significant peak of cases, even within the two to three weeks of which it would take for us because of the incubation period to see that difference. So if mm. Measures were lifted on the 5th of May and the incubation period, as we talked about in episode one of this, is up anywhere up to 14 days. So it's going to take up to 14 to 21 days to see any difference in that. And that could lead to a significant increase in cases, a significant increase in ICU admissions and a significant increase in um, deaths. So that's really what we don't want to do. So they are going to be monitoring it really carefully and looking at what's happening, looking at cases. And if they see any evidence, you know, that this or not is increasing above one, unfortunately, that means that more strict measures will probably um, have to be imposed to get it under control again. And, and you know, we they talk, there's this great model online about the hammer and the dance. Mm. So you hammer it down and then you dance around a little bit and you see what happens and then it rises and then you hammer it back down again. And I think Unfortunately for us, the possibility is that that's where we're heading until, as Kleena said, you know, we get some sort of a vaccine. Everyone, you know, I, a lot of my followers ask me about the first wave or this peak and when is the second wave going to come? And even the medical journalists are asking that at the, the DOH um, meetings every day. But we haven't seen the first wave. You know, we're plateaued. We, we rose a little bit and then we did fantastically as a nation to decrease the or not down. And we're now just on a steady pace. And, and that's where we need to keep it. We need to keep the disease under control in the community to get back, to be able to get back to our new normal, I guess. Yeah, I think in case anyone doesn't know what NEFID is, I should say it's the National Public yes, Health sorry. Emergency Team. No, you're fine. I'm sure most people have heard of it at this stage. But <laughs> thank you for, for explaining that. I think it's really important for people to understand how challenging and complex these decisions are and how important it is 
that they're taken uh, into consideration, you know, and given the time they deserve with all of the evidence to date at a given point in time, I think it's very, very difficult. I don't know if you've anything you want to add on that, Kalina. Well, absolutely agree with what you're both saying. And, and I suppose it's very nuanced and it's, it's all very new, you know, and certainly mm-hmm. exactly. the advisory group and, you know, the, the cross and the cross-governmental response has been really good to date. And there has been such engagement from the community and from, from the public in general. So really, you know, everyone is to be applauded for that. But certainly we do need to continue our efforts. There are other factors as well that will have to be considered, you know, as well as the usual parameters that we look at. You know, when we look at things like hospitalizations, ICU admissions, deaths, unfortunately, there are other parameters as well that need to be considered. We need to start looking now, you know, and these will have been considered already, but the societal factors, the mental health of the nation, you know, the economic impact. And certainly all of those things are going to be considered at the moment. Um, And certainly there are really intense, complex talks, I would imagine, happening right now as we speak between NEFIT and the government and the key stakeholders in order to figure out and finalise, you know, the next steps of the dance, as you referred to, Laura, you know, with this, you know, hammer and, and dance um, analogy, the hammer being the lockdown um, and the restrictions that we need to stop the outbreak, which we're seeing the benefits of right now, absolutely. And then the dance, which is the combination of things that we need to do to successfully move into and through the next phase. So um, we'll certainly be looking at what's happening in other countries as well. So we'll be looking closely at the experience of places like Denmark, where the kids have gone back to school. Um, and again, as Dr. Tedros, as the director general of the WHO, told us last week, COVID-19 will be here for a long time. You know, mm-hmm. the world population remains susceptible. So really, um, the greatest dangers that we face now, um, really, one of the greatest dangers that we face now is going to be complacency. So we need to mitigate against that risk. And I think how we can do that and what will help achieve buy-in from everyone, and myself included, will be a clear exit strategy. So in terms of having that exit strategy and looking at the results of the talks that are ongoing at the moment, I think a key part of that exit strategy as well will be the testing and the tracing. And what would be mm. so important yeah. is that that testing and tracing is real time. So really, we're going to need real time monitoring of the reinfection rate in the next phase. And certainly, I would agree, I don't think we have seen that big surge that everybody was anticipating because everyone did such an amazing job. You know, we managed to keep things um, you know, at a much, we managed to get things to a much better place than we would have anticipated that they would have been in initially. But certainly, we're still susceptible. You know, um, there's still a lot that we need to, to do to, to try and keep this, um, uh, you know, in, in a place where it's manageable. Because as you mentioned, Laura, there, you know, the information coming from Prof Nolan, um, from the modelling group, even the smallest change in the number that are not, you know, and the trajectory is totally skewed and can become very quickly, it can become unmanageable. So it's really important that I think that we have that clear exit strategy. Brilliant. Thank you both. I think that's really clearly explained and hopefully gives some people uh, gives people a bit of an insight uh, into how challenging this is and why it's not as simple as answering a question of when will it end? You know, they're just you can't answer that in one sentence. Um, I think the next bit I wanted to touch on um, in this episode today was face masks and gloves um, and the advice currently for the general public, because it's something I've gone on the radio and spoken about about four times at this stage. Um, and it's important to highlight that. We're recording this on, uh, what day is it today? Monday the 27th. So it is the most updated advice for Ireland at the present time. That's not to say that advice isn't subject to change on any aspect of COVID-19 as new evidence emerges. And that's really just a reality of 
dealing with a virus that we've only known about since the end of December. Um, and I think it is important for people to remember that it's really good that advice, you know, changes as evidence emerges to support it, um, because otherwise we wouldn't be very efficient at, at our efforts in, in containing it. So anyway, that's my disclaimer done with. Um, Laura, I'm going to start with you on the face masks. I know you were looking into this this week and you shared a post on it and had um, done some kind of interesting um, Instagram polls of your followers as well. What is the most up to date advice for, for Ireland on the use of face masks for the general public? So in Ireland, there is no recommendation currently that members of the general public wear face masks. And there's many reasons for that that we were discussing earlier. The main one being that, you know, the majority of the public, I suppose, don't know how to use them correctly and may, in fact, end up increasing their risk of picking up coronavirus by touching their face more and not donning and doffing the mask, taking on and off the mask um, correctly. And I think certainly masks will lead to a certain amount of complacency. And mm -hmm. as Cleana said, that's the biggest you know, the biggest challenge for us now. Now, there will be certain people in the community that may be advised by their GP to wear face masks when they are out in public, such as, you know, people with um, certain health conditions if they have to attend the doctor and things like that. But but the general advice in Ireland is that the general public do not need to wear face masks. And just to say, I, I see people wearing face masks all the time and mm. no one is wearing them correctly. So if they're wearing them <laughs> to stop themselves picking up coronavirus, they're not doing a good job. Yeah, and it's important for people to remember as well, like, thank you, Laura, that I think that's really what clearly explained. Um, and we, we, you know, our healthcare workers need masks, obviously, as part yeah. of their personal protective equipment, and that's critical. And we know PPE supply has been a challenge across the world, let alone in Ireland. Um, so thank you for, for laying that. I know you did a few Instagram polls on this as well. Did you? Yeah. This week? Yeah. So so I, I did a couple. So have you worn a face mask in public? So 13% had actually said um, that they had only. So 87% oh. hadn't. And of that, then 33% only felt safer with it on, which I think was really interesting. Um, and only That's very interesting. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. So 40% only knew how to take it on and off correctly then, which makes which just makes the whole thing mm. completely useless, you know. Um, and but it, it's interesting. So then, and and to correlate with that, then it, up to eighty percent, so seventy nine percent of people knew that they might be increasing their risk of picking up coronavirus by using it um, incorrectly. I think you know the reason I spoke about it, I suppose, was because obviously lots of other governments are now saying that they should use it, and as we discussed, you know. Um, Possibly, and, and um, Tony Holland, the, the Irish the, uh, chief medical officer, has suggested that it might be part of recommendations going forward as restrictions are um, lifted, that we might suggest using masks in public. And this is not the official guidance at the minute, but it might become it. But the reason for that is actually because of these very asymptomatic um, transmission people so people who have coronavirus and don't know that they have it and then by you wearing the mask you can stop yourself from spreading it to someone else rather than you picking it up from someone else mm. thank you I, I think explain it well it's, 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 you did you did you know it's a hard <laughs> question and I think at the moment like I suppose based on the evidence I am um, our public health advice in Ireland is that I suppose that as you say the risks of things like incorrect use and complacency yes and um, outweigh other factors when you think about um, use to the general public 
And then what about um, gloves, Kina, like disposable gloves to the general public? Because I certainly have seen a lot of people using those as well. What's our current advice on that? I think really with, with any of these things, face masks, gloves, any elements of PPE, personal protective equipment, what we're trying to do is we're trying to reduce the risk. Um, I think we need to look at this in order of priority. Certainly, I, I know you mentioned that earlier, Kira. I think what we need to do is prioritise PPE for healthcare workers that are certainly in very high risk scenarios. For example, you know, an aerosol generation procedure within the hospital that certainly requires full back of PPE. And, you know, certainly uh, we would need to make sure that the supplies are available for people to be able to do those procedures effectively and to help optimise patient outcomes while staying safe themselves and protecting those around them. Um, I think what we can do, we can say that there's absolutely no risk. So then you have to look at the degrees of risk that are associated with the particular activity that you're engaged in. So certainly, Laura, you know, you've put it together quite clearly there in terms of the masks. And there is a lot of conflicting advice um, and things are changing daily. You know, certainly the mask wearing advice nationally is being looked at almost on a daily basis. Um, and even the international authorities, you know, there is some discordant advice there. So certainly this isn't clear cut by any means. In terms of gloves, I think certainly they have a place within certain settings, um, you know, and again, it'll be part of a PPE picture, depending on, you know, for example, if somebody is a home health or if somebody is yeah. in a particular healthcare setting um, or if they're caring for somebody with COVID-19 out in the community, within the home, certainly there, there are places there and that has been clearly outlined in guidance. But yeah. this, I, I think wearing a pair of gloves for the day while you go out and about do your grocery shop, you know, um, again, I think a lot of the same issues are raised um, that are raised in relation to wearing, you know, um, indiscriminate wearing a face mask, certainly indiscriminate use of yeah. a pair of gloves. If you don't use them correctly, certainly you're going to increase your risk of inadvertently inoculating yourself or inadvertently contaminating yourself. So really what we will be saying is that it's the key messages of sticking with our basic principles of effective hand hygiene. That will certainly do yeah. much, if not more, to protect you than wearing a pair of gloves that you may, for example, um, you know, touch a contaminated surface and because you've gloves on, you don't wash your hands and then you touch your face. Yeah. Really, I think it's important that we look at the setting that the gloves are being used in, that we make sure that they're being prioritised for the right people, um, you know, within the correct setting. And certainly that if people are using these as an adjunct to the existing measures, that they use them correctly um, and that we still do all of our hand hygiene, our respiratory etiquette, our social distancing, etc. 100%. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. Um, a key message that we wanted to get across in this podcast, and I know particularly as a GP lord, this is something that um, you're very passionate about and you've, and you've posted about as well, is um, the importance of um, people not ignoring other uh, non-COVID related medical symptoms or signs or concerns that they would normally you know, phone their GP or indeed phone emergency services about. I was wondering if you could um, share a bit of a message uh, in this podcast on that, because I think it's such an important message at the moment. Well, in general, Absolutely. but particularly right now with this situation. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, understandably, people are, you know, worried that they will pick up coronavirus by if they want to attend their um, GP or if they need to attend the hospital, you know, or the emergency mm -hmm. department. But it's really important to remember that medicine and sickness doesn't care about coronavirus. Life must go on. Cancer, lumps, bumps, heart attacks, strokes. These are all still happening. New diagnosis of diabetes in children, you know, and these are things that we cannot ignore. We don't want to lose people because of coronavirus and then also lose this second, you know, wave of people that just haven't taken, you know, or looked mm -hmm. for medical advice 
for basic medical stuff that can and should be treated. And we definitely see it in GP. People aren't ringing as much. Now, obviously, GP, the landscape has changed and we're not seeing patients as much as we were, but we are there. We are at the end of the phone and we will see patients that we need to see. The emergency departments are open, you know, so it's so important if you have a medical issue to please, please, please attend your GP. And, you know, on my Instagram, I have people... um, messaging me wondering should they attend their GP for this it seems so you know not important in the current scale of things but in fact GP if anything is probably quieter at the minute you know because people aren't coming to us and we're not seeing patients so it's hugely important I really cannot stress it enough um, that you attend or I suppose ring your GP rather than attend your GP given the current climate and if you have any queries or concerns do not you know wait it out yes Unfortunately, some, um, you know, routine stuff has been delayed, but they've spoken mm-hmm. about that at the Department of Health meetings as well. That will all have to get back up and running. You know, um, cancer isn't move going for anyone. So we need to get testing done. Um, so please, please, please attend your GP as much as you can. Thank Let you. Us, I, think uh, so I don't know. I should say, sorry, Kira. Work away. Just, just to say, like, let us protect you. You know, that's what we're there for. Mm. Let us protect you from from COVID-19, from coronavirus. You know, we're donning, we're wearing personal protective equipment to protect us from you and also you from us. We're cleaning down the mm. surgeries. You know, we're making everything as safe as we can. And the same in the hospitals with they will have covid Um, emergency streams and non-COVID emergency streams. So that's the job of the doctors is to protect you guys. So please still come. Absolutely. And I think, you know, like making the phone call is a very small thing that you can do to benefit your health if you're not sure. And we need to be minding our health more than ever at the minute. So there's no point ignoring things and letting them run on and on. You know, a, a simple phone call will help, you know, will help you to help your GP decide if it's something that can wager for something that needs to be addressed ASAP. Yeah. Um, the last area we wanted to uh, touch on, um, I think second last area actually, um, was um, with yourself, Lena, um, about if there's been a lot of chat and as always, when anything new arises in health, people jump the gun. But there is, um, it, rightly so, a lot of chat at the minute about antibody testing. And I know it's something that um, I've had a few questions about from followers on Instagram and I've seen it uh, come up a lot with the medical journalists at the Daily Department of Health briefing. I was wondering if you could... Um, share what we know so far or even explain the concept to us a little bit and obviously highlight the limitations that are that are going to exist as well. Absolutely, thanks Kira. Um, so I suppose as I mentioned already in terms of our exit strategy we need to have really comprehensive robust and timely testing. So right now the diagnostic capacity um, has increased so much so we've gone from not doing this test at all to doing this PCR test for the SARS-CoV-2 and having it rolled out in 27 labs nationally. Um, so that PCR test, that's the gold standard for detecting SARS-CoV-2 in the acute phase of the illness. So there are some alternative diagnostics, and I'll come to that now in a minute, um, but certainly for our exit strategy, we need to have timely testing and tracing. Um, so while the surge capacity and the capacity for diagnostics has ramped up massively, Certainly things that were becoming rate limiting factors, things like the global shortage of swabs and reagent and equipment breaking down and not being able to be replaced. Um, certainly that could happen again during another surge so or, or during a surge. So 
Um, certainly we've had more time to prepare for that, but um, we've had more time to prepare for it and mitigate against it, but certainly it could happen again, I suppose, is one point to make. The other thing is that the next challenge or stress on the system now would be the broadening of the case definition and testing criteria, which will happen in the coming days to weeks, most likely. Yeah. So part of the exit strategy, this is going to mean that we're going to be testing more people. We're going to be carrying out more active contact tracing. And this is, again, to get that real-time picture that I mentioned earlier. It's that real-time element that is so, so vital because if we leave it too long to test, detect cases and isolate them and contact trace, the damage is done. And Laura, you mentioned it earlier, then you have that exponential spread, you have that exponential growth, and it's happening over the week or two weeks or three weeks, and then we get to a point where it's unmanageable. So really, we need to have that real-time monitoring of the reinfection rate. Um, uh, So we we need to have that. um, It has to be happening um, as, let's say, the restrictions are eased, and we need to have an accurate picture of what's happening there and then at that time. Um, in terms of the contact tracing and making that more robust for, let's say, the next phase that we move into, if we do move into the next phase, there certainly has been, you're probably familiar with this, Kira, this national contact management program now that's been rolled out, um, which mm, is a system. And uh, that's really to deal with high throughput, low complexity contact tracing. So that's when people start moving about again, if their contact numbers increase then that's what that system is ideally set up for. And then it frees up the specialist expertise to deal with the more complex control activities of the nursing homes and the direct provision settings, as we were talking about earlier, and Mm -hmm. certainly allows the specialist public health expertise then to feed into those activities and other activities like the modelling and developing and implementing national guidance and strategies with method, etc. There is also an adjunctive national app that's being worked on at the moment, so I'm sure we'll probably hear more about that. That's an app for contact tracing. I think it'll be an opt-in, as I understand. So... We'll certainly hear more about that in the coming weeks, I'm sure. And the other point to make is that data management processes have been streamlined as well. So all of that, I think, will feed into having this really comprehensive, robust, real-time testing and tracing um, set up as part of the exit strategy. In terms mm-hmm. of alternative diagnostics, absolutely, there is so much discussion around this at the moment. Um, I suppose a key point to make, I'm not sure if you've seen the HICWA HTA um, that was published mm. 22nd of April. So that looked at this exact topic. And certainly there's a lot happening globally around this. So it's important to understand that there, are, when it comes to COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-2, there are two broad groups of tests. So you have your first group of tests that will actually detect the virus. So that's the PCR test that we talk about. And that is useful in the acute phase of the illness because it helps you to diagnose infection when somebody is acutely unwell because it's picking up the virus. There's a second group then that will detect the body's immune response to the virus. And the way the body's immune system responds to the virus typically is by developing antibodies. So this is where the antibody testing comes into play. Um, And I suppose it's important to understand that both of these groups of tests are both clinically relevant, but they're useful at different time points along the clinical course of the illness. Um, I suppose the fact that The antibody testing is a new test. Again, it's going to be subject to all of the validation and verification, all of the testing that we had to do when we were trying to bring in the PCR. Um, It's a little bit different from the PCR test, so it's not a swab this time. It's a serology test, so that means typically somebody would have to get a blood sample taken, and typically what we would do is we would have an acute and a convalescent sample, so you'd have what's called paired sera. Um, So there might be two blood samples. And then a really important thing to understand, I think, for people is that because this is an antibody test, so we have to wait for the body to develop the antibodies after it's been exposed to the virus. There are two antibodies that we look at. There's IgM, which tends to develop 
um, sooner uh, in the course of the illness. So when your antibodies develop, it's called seroconversion. So typically we see seroconversion or development of the antibodies starting around day seven or 10 up to day 14. So the IgM comes first in uh, the earlier phase of the illness. And then later on, we tend to see IgG. So the big one that people are looking at at the moment is IgG because they're some people are speculating that we may be able to use that in order to determine whether somebody is immune or not. But the problem with that is that we don't know at the moment how long IgG is going to hang around for. We don't know what it tells us about the immunity status of that individual. And we don't know whether reinfection can occur or not. The other problem with these antibody tests is that they are not as accurate as the PCR tests. And certainly the WHO has advised against using rapid antibody tests in settings, any other settings other than research settings until there is a lot more robust evidence in relation to things like sensitivity, specificity and validation. Um, there is a big risk of, you know, getting an incorrect result, getting something like a false negative. Um, and certainly if you have a false negative um, and somebody is acutely symptomatic and shedding virus, certainly we can see there immediately how serious the public health implications are for that kind of a scenario. So there yeah. are a lot of questions around it. It's not fully teased out yet. The actual utility of it um, as an adjunctive testing tool, um, those different people have talked about different things. Um, so three different scenarios have been proposed where it might come useful. So that would be at a patient level testing. So you'd be documenting immunity for a particular individual. Secondly, we'll be at a workforce level. So you'd be documenting immunity, the so-called immunity passport. Um, so that's somebody you could say, or does not have immunity but again the WHO have come out very strongly against that concept and mm -hmm. um, you know it's not something at the moment that we could say would be a possibility and it's not something that we'd seen previously in respiratory diseases um, or respiratory infections and then the third place where probably the antibody tests will have utility after a while would be at a population level so that we'd be looking at um, the role of these antibody tests. So it would likely to be as part of a well-constructed seroprevalence study. So that would help us to model the course of the pandemic and help us to see who has been exposed to the virus. And in that way, it would help to inform the public health response. But certainly we're a good bit off using it. And as I said, the WHO at the moment is saying not for use outside of research settings. Brilliant. I don't think there's anything anyone can add to that that was so beautifully explained thank you so much um thank you I think it's important to bear in mind like as you said there like people keep talking about immunity or asking about immunity after infection but what's we, we're still doing a huge amount of research on the strength of immunity and the duration of immunity after infection would I be right in saying that Absolutely, yeah. So like the key thing at the moment is that the PCR is the gold standard test for diagnosing infection in the acute phase and then you have that timeline yeah. where we move to tests that will look at detecting the body's immune response to the virus. And as part of that, then that's where the antibodies come in. So there are actually other alternative diagnostics as well. But I suppose the one that seems to be getting the most airspace at the moment is the antibody testing um, in terms of that mm. second group. Yeah. But loads of work that's going right. on. COVID, you know, so certainly I would think we'll learn a lot more about this in the days and weeks to come and months, certainly. And it is encouraging that there's so many different experts around the world literally focusing all of their brain power, time and attention on this research, on these research questions about um, the SARS-CoV-2 virus and COVID-19. I think that's definitely really encouraging and definitely a positive for people to, to take. Um, girls, this has been such an informative episode and touched on some, I think, major FAQs that we've been fielding um, in work and outside of work online. I think the important point we need to finish on, as we have said, 
um already but it really can't be stressed enough is that we we cannot get complacent now um obviously may 5th is um you know it's over a week away at this point and it is absolutely critical that we make every single day count i say it every day on my instagram people are probably tired of hearing that but the basics are what we know are the most evidence-based measures to protect ourselves and our loved ones, washing our hands, practicing social or physical distancing and um, following, you know, good respiratory um, etiquette advice and keeping informed and up to date on the HC website and obviously staying home and following the public health advice um, as regards that. Um, girls, I wonder if you anything you'd like to add on that point. I'll start with yourself, Laura. I think you covered kind of all of it there, Kira. I just plead with everyone to do the best that you can. I know it's so easy to get complacent. We haven't seen the big surge that we thought was coming, but that's such a good thing. And we just need to keep the mm. cases down so that we can get some sort of restrictions lifted in some way and get back to our new normal. Um, stay the course, wash your hands, you know, practice respiratory etiquette and, and we will all come out of this for the better. And and remember, you know, you not, might not be worried about it affecting you, but it's affecting your loved ones. And Ireland is, the big thing for me is Ireland is so small, we're all going to be affected by it. And actually, I saw yesterday, I was dropping stuff down to my parents, we we're doing the shopping for them. I saw my first coronavirus funeral. So we were driving oh. down the road and I was like, God, there's an awful lot of people out. And I, first of all, I got really worried. I was like, oh, my God, no, the good weather. This is really sad. But actually, they were all standing out in front of their houses waiting for the funeral cortege to pass by. So that's what life is like at the minute. That's, you know, if yeah. we reduce, you know, anything in any way at the wrong time, that's what we're going to have to live with. The funeral that drives past us. So please, please, please just, you know, stay safe, stay home. Absolutely. Um, Kleena, do you have any, um, anything you'd like to add there? I think you, you've both, you know, explained it really well. Um, and it's really um, a tough time for people, definitely. And certainly it is totally understandable that there is this concept of emergency exhaustion, you know, being asked of people mm. is really very difficult. But I think we just have to bring it back to the first principles of we're doing this to protect our loved ones. And we yeah. just have yeah. to make sure that we keep going with the measures that we know that work. So as you've both said, hand washing, respiratory etiquette, social distancing, et cetera. And hopefully then, you know, as time progresses and hopefully there'll be some, some good news next week, maybe in terms of easing of some restrictions, you know, we may be able to um, look at things then and review the situation then at that stage. But certainly things like hand washing and respiratory etiquette, they're useful all of the time. They have to prevent a lot of infections, not just COVID-19 and spread of SARS-CoV-2. So certainly I think they're really important points to remember for people. Brilliant. I'd just like to just do an extra last point to finish on and just ask you both if there are certain things you found really helpful to sort of mind your mental well-being at the minute. I know I'm particularly uh, kind of sensing it from social media um, and from I suppose, family and friends too, but that people are, it is hard. Like this is a really hard time. This is nothing any of us have ever lived through. Um, and even if I take too much of a step back to see the bigger picture, I get very overwhelmed and I have to focus on the day by day. But I was wondering if you might share uh, maybe one or two tips that each of you have found helpful to just, you know, keep your headspace um, a, a bit more balanced and um, I suppose positive and acknowledging that every feeling we have about the situation is valid it's okay to have good days and bad days but I think it's it's nice to remind people that it is important to to look after your mental health particularly during this time and um, Laura what are you finding useful? 
So funnily enough, it actually helps me to know more about what's happening, if that makes any sense. So Monday to Friday, I, I you know, watch the Department of Health briefings and I get my little bit and I understand it and I'm happy with what I know. And then I, I, I totally switch off for the weekend. So I don't do any coronavirus Saturday and Sunday. Um, yeah. Having that extra bit of knowledge actually helps to reassure me and calm me down um, mm. and then I'm just trying to take a break I suppose from it all as well so just trying to balance it out because I suppose for me my Instagram followers message me every day when I don't have a graph up if it's not yeah. on time so I can't get away from it so that's how I'm balancing it at the minute it's a very fine line for me between you know trying to get my head around it and grasping it and understanding it and then also being able to take a step back and that's just because I suppose at the very beginning like you said if you start thinking about it and go down like a rabbit hole it's really can be quite yeah. scary um, and I don't want to get to that stage so by by keeping everything in check that allows me to um, actually keep my mental health more balanced. I love that. So staying informed, but setting boundaries on how you stay informed yeah. and making sure you take breaks from consuming the content on it. You put it much better than I did. Yes. Yeah, exactly. No, it's my job to summarize. Don't worry. <laughs> As podcast host, I'd be doing my job wrong if I didn't do that. And Kleena, what's, what are you finding helpful at the moment? So interestingly, it's exactly the same. It's exactly as you put it, Laura. It's making sure, you know, there is some reassurance from being informed and knowledge is power and all of that and certainly I, I find it reassuring um looking at the all of the work that's being done and knowing that everybody is taking this really seriously and working really hard um to try and get this to where it needs to be um, but equally making sure then that there is some non-covid time as well i think that's really important brilliant brilliant um, i suppose just a couple of tips I'd share and what I'm finding most helpful is quite literal. This is really hard for me as someone who loves to plan and tends to plan short term and long term. But I am quite literally living my life day to day. I know what's probably going to happen tomorrow, but I know with certainty that I have right now and I have today. Um, and I think that's what's proving most helpful for me um, as well as staying connected. And I don't mean necessarily through social media, but doing things like this podcast, speaking to you guys and having a chat before we record, doing a video call with my family. I'm calling a friend later um, who's working on the front line in hospitals and we haven't seen each other in weeks, you know, staying connected that way and talking about those difficult days. And then my third one I share um, is, I suppose, cultivating or just enjoying creative habits that take my mind completely out of COVID. So I've found writing really helpful. Um, I don't know what I'm writing, but I'm writing and it's useful. Things like reading or that. cooking. Yeah. Um, I just started writing. I've always wanted to write a book, but I'm not saying I'm writing a book. I've just started writing about my life and it takes me completely out of the present situation. Um, like at the moment, I'm writing about when I was a junior doctor, um, just half an hour a day or more. Sometimes it's it's a little bit more, but it's just a complete break. And my mind is completely out of right now. And it's back in days gone past that I, I know happened. <laughs> I know how they happened. Um, but it's a really interesting exercise and it just puts your mind out of of right now which can get really overwhelming at times so I just encourage people to find something that takes them out of like I suppose constantly having their mind flooded by updates and things like that things you really enjoy and put you in a bit of flow I think that's really helpful too sorry I'm rabbiting on so I'm going to stop with that um thank you so much girls I think this episode has been um just as informative as our first and I really think they're just such valuable um 
pieces of content to put together. And it's a really enjoyable chat with both of you too. Um, I'd love if you could tell our listeners where to find you both. I know we said that already, but we'll just reiterate it. Um, and do you guys let us know if you listen in, tag us on your Instagram stories and tell us what you thought. Uh, Laura, where can people find you if they want to get in touch? So my the main place I hang out is Instagram at DrLauraGP or DrLauraGP.com. Great stuff. And Kleena, what about you? So on Twitter, I'm at uh, Kleena, C-L-I-O-T-H-N-A. And on Instagram, I'm at C underscore, me underscore, Vukla. Lovely, lovely. A great Irish name. <laughs> There's a Gaelga. Twister for people, but yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> girls thank you so so much um mind yourselves and thank you all for listening i really really appreciated um everyone tuning in and do as i say let us know what you think of this episode get in touch um send us a message or leave a comment on the podcast and as i said give us a tag in your stories and i always have to say this but if you do enjoy the podcast please subscribe and if you want to share a review please do because it helps the message reach more people thanks for listening guys and i'll see you for the next episode